Lord, we just come before you and ask you to bless this time as we look at the word and have you have you just show us what you'd have us see from the the retelling of the law here in Deuteronomy. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. It's been two weeks since we studied. We made it through the Ten Commandments last week, and so here we are on the verse 22. These words the Lord spoke unto all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick darkness, and with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in two tablets of stone and delivered them unto me. And it came to pass when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mountain did burn with fire, that you came near unto me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said unto me, Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God does talk with man and he lives. So we're going to stop there for this moment. If you remember back in Exodus, uh, they were down at the bottom of Mount Sinai and God said to put a fence around Sinai and nobody was to go up on the mountain, no animals, no person. If they did, they would be, they would be struck dead. And God spoke to the people in an audible voice. And it's kind of interesting because this is a recapping of their, their, their fear at hearing God's voice. And it says that he gave them the Ten Commandments out of the midst. And he said, he, and he gave them no more, and that's in this way. Okay? He stopped in the audible with just the Ten Commandments, and then Moses went up and he wrote the Ten Commandments on the, on the tablets. And, uh, and, he, and then as the people, as God spoke to the people, the people went to Moses and said, we can't handle this. We can't handle listening to God in this manner. And it's kind of an amazing thing that God spoke out loud, gave him the Ten Commandments, and the people's attitude was, we don't want to be near God. You know, I don't, I don't, by the same token, I don't find this too unbelievable either because I've seen people that claim to be Christians who, when God starts speaking to them and through the word, through the preaching, They'll start backing off because they don't want to hear God. And it's amazing how people will do this. They, if they're not really dedicated in, in a relationship with God, they'll pull back. They'll push back. And you see this when somebody gets into sin. Instead of drawing closer to the church and getting exhorted and strengthened and lifted up, they tend to pull away. And you see this over and over. The, they start slipping to the back of the church, and then before long, they've slipped right out the back door of the church, and you don't see them for a while. And you call them up and say, hey, where you been? Oh, well, I've just been busy, this, that, or the other thing. And you know that something's up. You know that something's wrong, so you just encourage them to come on back. But this is what happens when, our, when our, we face our sin and, our, and we get close to, close to God with his holiness and his righteousness, our sin looks bad, and we tend to pull away. And what we need to be doing is pull into him and say, God, I'm a sinner. Help me cleanse my life and let him cleanse our life and let the body lift us up. But over and over again, over the 40, 44 years I've been around in the church, I've watched people pull away from God. Right, And always, it's almost always when they're supposed to be pulling close to him, they'll pull away from him. And then they wonder why they're living in defeat, because they've pulled away. And here the people are telling him, 
um, you know, Moses, you go, you go talk to him. Uh, and I, and I and love this part where it says, you know, he has shown us his glory and his greatness. This is what most people say they want to see is his glory and his greatness. And yet his glory and his greatness convicted them. They heard his voice in that day. And then it says, we have seen this day that God does talk with man and he lives. And this he is talking about people. Because there was always this attitude of if you see God, you will die. If you see an angel, you will die. And part of it is because God told him to, you know, told Moses, you can't see my face. No man can look at my face and, and live. But, you know, we see this over and over. When people see the angels, they expect to die. Jacob, after he realized he was wrestling with an angel, expected to die after he'd been blessed. Uh, Samson's uh, father, after, after he saw the angel, says, we will surely die because we've seen, we've, seen, we've seen an angel. And his wife says, well, why would he have given us this news if we were going to be dead? Uh, you know, we see this over and over through the scriptures. Somebody sees, gets a message from God from, a, from an angel, and they immediately expect to be struck dead. They've been given a message to go do something, and they immediately think they're going to be struck dead. Now, it doesn't make any logical sense to me, but that is what they thought. You see something from the spiritual realm and you would be and you you would not be able to live and here they're saying the same thing you know we heard god's word and we're still alive and then it goes then verse 25 goes on now therefore why should we die (laughs) with this great fire for this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the lord our god anymore then we shall die they really expected just hearing his voice was going to strike them dead. And again, I'm not going to be too harsh on them because this is true. When the, when the closer we draw to God, the more we see how sinful we are. Because we see more of his righteousness, more of his light shines on us. And we get to see just how really sinful we are as we draw close to him. And his, drawing close to God will cause conviction. And at that point, we have a choice. Are we going to continue drawing close to him and, and allowing him to cleanse us? Or are we going to pull back and say, okay, I've had enough. I can't handle this conviction. I'm going to pull back. And here they're saying, we're going to pull back. We don't want to deal with God. We don't want a personal relationship with God. And the sad thing is the Jews really pretty much did not have personal relationship with God from that point on. A handful do, do, you know, you've got Daniel, you've got a Daniel, you've got a David, you've got Samuel. You've got people who draw close to God, but as a nation, as a group of people, they've kept God at arm's length. And even today, if you go to Jerusalem, people are shocked when they go to Jerusalem and find that most of the Jews there are, pract- are at best agnostic and, and atheistic. And it shocks people when they go there. At least that's what I've been told, because that's not what they expect. They're going to the Jews. They expect, they expect to see a, uh, a godly people seeking after God, and what they find are people that barely acknowledge God's existence at all. And it's really funny, because they'll, they'll tell you there is no God, but they'll tell you they're God's people living in the land that God gave them, <laughs> because they're parroting what they've been taught in their early years. But yet they'll tell you there's no God. So they're a very strange enigma, and I think it goes all the way back to this point where they're saying, 
God, God, you know, you, you go, Moses, you go talk to God and, we, and you tell us what he says to do. We don't, you know, we don't need to hear directly from him because if we hear from him, we're going to die. Which I think goes to show their total lack of trust. What did they do in, you know, when Moses came and, and said, let my people go, they've been praying to God to, for deliverance. And as soon as he goes and gives, and gives Pharaoh that ultimatum, what does Pharaoh do? He takes away the straw and makes life difficult for them. And immediately they attack Moses. Who are you to come here and, and make life miserable for us? Then they have all these plagues and they finally get going out. Pharaoh starts chasing them. They get stuck outside the Red Sea. And the very first thing they go is, wasn't there enough graves in Egypt? You brought us out here so that we could die in the wilderness. They get to the other side of the Red Sea after a miraculous splitting of the Red Sea. And the very first thing they say is, we're thirsty. God brought us out here to kill us. Every time you turn around, they're complaining that God is trying to kill them. Every time he shows himself and shows himself in a mighty way, they see his righteousness. They see how good he is and they pull back from him. And we see this over and over again. Verse 27 says, Go you near and hear all that the Lord shall say, and speak you unto us all that the Lord shall speak unto you, and we shall hear it and do it. And we keep bringing this out. Every time they, they did this, they go, We'll obey God. We'll listen to God. And if you remember on Mount Sinai, they go, well, you know, Moses, you go up there and you come back and tell us what he is. I'd already, already heard him speak. And while Moses was up there for 40 days, they, find, they go, what's wrong with Moses? He's taken too long. Uh, maybe, maybe he died up there. And they go to Aaron and say, you know, create us and make us a god. And Moses comes off the mountain and they're worshiping the golden idol. The golden calf. Came out that way. Yeah, I've always loved loved Aaron's excuse, you know. Well, I just threw the gold in the fire and out came this, out came this uh, golden calf, Moses. Uh, uh, I've always loved that that excuse. Probably the worst excuse ever ever recorded anywhere. I just threw the gold in and out out walked this calf. But again, every time that they dealt with this, to see God's face was to bring death. And, that, and we see that all through the scripture. That was a very Jewish thing. You know, if you see God or an angel, you were going to die. Even when he told you you were going to do great things, Gideon did the same thing. You know, oh, woe is me, I'm going to die. I, I saw an angel. The angel had already told him to go to battle. <laughs> and we see the same thing, though, in Christianity when people are afraid of different thing, aspects of God. They're afraid, you know, how many churches do you go to where you can't see anybody having a good time because they've been taught that you're not supposed to have a good time or whatever whatever it is that they're, that, you know, if you crack a smile, you're being sacrilegious or something, you know. It's, <laughs> it's not hard to get a phobia started. And there is, seems to be this opinion that God has no sense of humor, that he's, you know, just a big bully. You know, I like to, you know, I talk about people having this idea that God's playing whack-a-mole. If you stick your head up out of the, out from the, you know, out there, he hits you. And, and there's a lot of people that believe that. If I just pop my head up and look around, God's going to hit me. And they're so fearful of him, and it's sad. It's sad that we've got a God that loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us. He's given so much mercy all through the scriptures, and people are terrified of God. And you hear when people joke, well, if I step inside the church, the walls are going to fall down. You know, it's, 
Well, no, there's nobody that bad. There's nobody that bad that God doesn't love them anymore. Mm-hmm. But the sad thing is there are churches that teach that kind of stuff. Whether on purpose or not, I don't know, but they teach it. Now, you got to get your life cleaned up or you can't be one of us. You've got to follow these set, this set of rules or you're not being a good Christian. And, it's, and, I, and I don't think it's really on purpose. It's just it, it's something you learn. Part of it is when we teach that God is holy and righteous and demands, you know, demands us to be you know, converted and changed over to him, and that builds a fear. And we don't necessarily teach as much grace and mercy as we probably should. And this happens, and we judge one another. Well, this person's not a very good Christian. Look at the way they're living. It doesn't take long before people pick up on that, that there's a way to live. If you're a Christian, you have to live a certain way. And they're going to very quickly find out what the standards are in that particular group that, is, you know, that means that you're a good Christian. You know, I, can, I can remember when first on, uh, they used to quote, you know, uh, from the basically the 50s, you know, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or you know, or, uh, tobacco, and don't go with girls that do type thing. You know, it's you know this very short list of you know these are the things you can't do these things and be a Christian. And you know, we we saw in the early days, you know, that if a man had long hair, it was he was not being a good Christian. If a woman wore slacks, she was. You know, not, not, not being a good Christian. You know, all these different laws and rules that got applied. And the world picked up on it. The world picked up on it as much as the Christians did. And they're going, well, that's what being a Christian is. I don't, I don't want any part of it. And the sad thing was none of those rules had anything to do with being a Christian. It was all about having a relationship with Jesus Christ and then letting him change who you are to be more like him which may have included some of those rules, but didn't have to. And so we haven't done a good job as Christians, and, and it's sad because the message of Christ is so simple. He died for our sins and just wants to be living in us to tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. And if he's living in us, telling us what to do, we will become more like him and do the right things just because he's inside te- teaching us. My conversion was so slow that I couldn't believe it. And that's exactly the way most Christians are. It can't be that simple. I've got to do something hard. I've got to struggle. I've got to strive. Which is why I tell people when, when they're going, I'm really trying real hard, I will tell them, quit trying and let God crucify your flesh and change you. All my, ch- all my big changes in my life have been God doing the changing in my life. It's not me sitting there working so hard and saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to keep working at this till I get it right. The times I've tried that, I've failed miserably. The times I've just said, God, I surrender, I give up, he goes, okay, fine, let's fix that problem for you. And it disappears. And you look back two, three years later and go, wow, that thing I struggled with for six years is, is gone and I haven't even thought about it. I struggled for 50 years. Well, yeah. It could be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but, you know, but we look back over it and say, look at what he just takes right out of my life when I just surrender, when I just say, I'm not trying anymore, God, I want you to do it. And it, and it is so precious. God didn't give us the laws that we're studying to, sh- to give us something to live up to. He gave us these rules so that we would know that we can't live up to him. And this is the most important thing. If we are trying to live up to law and rules, 
then we get arrogant and, and proud. Look what I'm doing. I, I'm this, that, or the other thing. I'm following this set of rules, and I'm doing really good. And God said, well, I've got another set of rules for you that you're not living up to. But, <laughs> but this is where we come down. And I was sharing just the other day, God kind of revealed to me. I've always kind of regretted that it's taken me a long time to learn things. But most of the people who had their lives changed almost instantly, they have trouble with other Christians that don't get their life changed around instantly. Because they look at it and say, well, it was simple. All you did was turn your life to God, and all of a sudden you're a brand new person, and they get proud, arrogant, and judgmental of the poor people that are the majority of Christians having to learn the hard way. And then the flip side of that problem is when they hit the problem that they can't just get over instantly, it can throw them for a loop because they're so used to the idea that God just instantly fixes, all, fixes who you are and makes you a brand new creature. And many times those people who have got drastic changes in their life overnight will fall flat on their face, sometimes for long periods of time, when they hit that problem that just didn't disappear overnight. And uh, so I'm not sure that these people, that God's doing a great big favor to these people that have dramatic changed lives overnight. Uh, whereas we, those of us who learn long and slow and steady, you know, and all of us should have something in our life that God changed when we got saved. If we're not, then, then there's a problem, I think. I look back and the thing he took from me was my temper, but it's taken a long time for the rest of my life to be <laughs> corrected. But that one big thing was a big thing he took out of my life. So here we are, the people are telling Moses, Moses, you go, you, you go talk to God. We don't want to, we don't want to be near him. And verse 28, And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken unto me. And they have well said, Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always, that it might be well with them and, their, and with their children forever. I hear a longing of God here. He goes, It's good that they didn't want to be near me because they're not, their hearts aren't right anyway. And they would have problems. And then it says, oh, that they had a heart in them that, that, would, that would fear me. These people had shown over and over again that they didn't fear God. They didn't long after him. And this is one of the things that grieves me when I meet people who say they're Christians and they have no desire for God. Uh, it's like, well, I can come to church or not come to church. It doesn't matter. I can read my Bible or not read my Bible. It doesn't matter. I can hang out with godly people or not. It doesn't matter. I just... You know, God is not that big a deal, but I'm a Christian. You know, and you, you see this in God saying, oh, that they had a heart that would fear me, that they would always keep my commandments because they loved me so much, that they cared. And this is what I love when I meet people who are really in love with God. Are they perfect people? No. Nobody who's really in love with God and, and in a relationship with God is a perfect person. They've got problems. Sometimes they got really big problems. Uh, but they love God with all their heart, and you watch them grow. You watch them change. And you, you see the excitement when they get into the, God's Word. You see the excitement when they're listening to a message. You see that excitement when they're worshiping God and talking about God because their heart fears God and they want to know Him. 
Even though they're making mistakes, they want to know him. And they're going to be in front, on their face before God, confessing their sins and saying, God, I, I've done this, I've done that, but I still love you. Help change me. Give me guidance. Give me leadership. And here's God saying, I wish they, I wish they would, you know, they speak correctly. They shouldn't, be, they shouldn't be listening to me because of the conviction in their heart that they're going to have. But, oh, don't I wish that they would have been, you know, would have been having a heart after me that I could have talked directly with them from the mountain and given these rules directly to them. But he says, okay, you know, this is what they want. They're right. They don't love me. They don't have that following. And God knows that they were going to fall on their face hundreds of times over the, over the Old Testament. And then it says on verse 30, go say to them, get you into your tents again. Go hide in your tents. And this is something that when we read in Exodus is something in Numbers and all this, this is what they did a lot. Whenever they were fearful of God, they would go hide in their tents and watch Moses go to the, the meeting of tabernacles to be with God. They would watch Moses come out with his face shining and you know, having, having a relationship with God and kind of desire it but be too afraid to step forward. As you said, the idea of it was too simple. Things can be too simple. All you have to do is stand before God and get blessed. Go before God and be blessed. Just release your life to him and be blessed and let him change you. The simplicity of the gospel of Christ and the Christian walk is so wonderful. Jesus said the way is narrow that leads to life, but the broad way leads to death. Have you ever thought about this? The Broadway is just like the chutes that they drive cattle into. Starts out wide and moves down into a chute that leads up to the truck that leads them to the slaughterhouse. The Broadway ends up in a very narrow place. When we walk with Christ, we enter in in a narrow path and we get freedom. We, get, we come in off the chute and we get to enter the field, wide field, and be able to just have freedom because we're not bound and he loosens up everything. Yes, it's a narrow way. It's only one way. It's him, but it leads to freedom. Everybody that's on that broad road, are those theoretical believers and uh, theoretical Christians? I mean, that road isn't for all the Hitlers of the world. It's everybody. The broad way is everybody who doesn't accept Jesus Christ. So some can say they're Christians. Some will be good people. The sad thing is, hell is going to be filled with a lot of good people because they rejected Christ and thought that they were going to be okay on their own merits. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot of good people in hell. But it could be plenty of just flat non-believers. Oh, they're going to all be non-believers. Okay, they're all in that broad They're way. all non-believers in the broad... Well, we all start in the broad way. And we have that opportunity to go off to the narrow way. Okay, because all people are headed to hell when they first... Are, before they accept Christ. And then once we accept Christ, we've entered into the narrow way. Uh, but yeah, so there are, believe, you know, there are potential believers in the broad way at first because that's where we all start out. Broad is the way to destruction and, and you know, we all are in that path to start with because we're not saved. Once we're saved, it means we've entered into the, the narrow path. We've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is the sad thing because we get a lot of religious people who are going to go to hell because they don't believe in Christ. You know, they've kept rules, they've obeyed things, they've 
they thought that they were doing good things and they're going to end up in hell because they didn't accept the narrow path of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I gave my life for you. Come mm -hmm. to me. So that narrow way is through the cross. And everything else is not enough. You know, there are people that think that there is no afterlife, so they're not even trying to please a God. They're just trying to please themselves in this life. You've got people who are trying to do good works in the religious crowd, and they're trying to build their own bridge across the chasm to God, and they're never going to have enough supplies and good to, to cross that chasm. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got those who are outright lying to people and know they are. Uh, so you've got all of these things that are saying, we've got a way to God. And there's only one way, and that's Jesus. And Jesus will show himself to those who need to see him. This is the amazing thing. If you, get, if you go to the right places, you can find all these Muslims out in the, in the Middle East who are getting visions of Jesus. And basically he's saying, I know you're searching for life. I am that life. You've got to come to me. Okay, because he recognizes that they're in, the, they're in the Muslim faith and they're really sincere. And he goes, you're sincerely wrong. You've got to come to me. And he's showing him. Many missionaries, uh, you know, the missionary stories that I read, would go to these middle of nowhere tribes and, and they'd start telling the story of Jesus. And they would hear something along the lines of, we've been waiting for somebody to tell us the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. you know, we knew that we needed God, but we've been waiting for the rest of the story. God gave him enough of the story to, to say, you've got to follow me. And a missionary finally would come along and give him the whole story. And so we see that God is very just. He is righteous. He's going to tell people how to come to him. And it seems that every society, every civilization that missionaries have gone to, they've always found a small group of people that basically did what Paul had said on Mars Hill, said they're worshiping the unknown God where they live different from everybody else because they go, we know that they're wrong. We need, we need God. They didn't know exactly what they needed, but they needed God. And that's the first step of salvation, to realize that I can't do it. I need God. But people have all been out there. There's people who know they want more. They want, they want to know more. They want to know the, the God. And they know that they need him, that they can't do it. And that's really the first step of salvation. I recognize I can't do it. And I turn to God and say, I can't do it. I need your gift. Now, in their case, they don't know the gift that they're accepting. They just know they need God to be the one to give it to them. We need to see and present a God who loves, a God who cares. It's amazing when I have people tell me, the, oh, there's two different gods in the Bible. There's the Old Testament angry God and the New Testament loving God. I'm going, well, I don't know about that loving God part. Uh, he killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the church that they gave their, that they sold their property and were giving all the money, and he struck them dead instantly. And look at all these merciful activities in the Old Testament. Yes, he was more, more wrathful at that time, but he had so much mercy. Sa saving Noah, you know, saving Rahab and her family. All these different things that he did that was so merciful to people who really didn't deserve it, just like we don't deserve salvation. And yet his mercy and his grace and his love shines through very clearly in the Old Testament. And his wrath shows at various times in the Old Testament. Paul said many, you know, to the Corinthians, many of you are sick and dying because of your, your coming to the communion unworthy and God is judging you. Yeah. 
And people skip over that. They don't really look at that to say, you know, because it wasn't necessarily the same God that swall ground swallowed up, a, you know, a whole family. God was just as righteous in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. And he's just as merciful in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And so when I have people tell me that, I'm going, oh, have you ever read the scriptures? Let me show you. And show them the various stories in the Bible that, that show that they're not, it's not what they think. Because he's the same God. He's always been the same God. And he loves people. And he's reaching out to share with people. And he's going to give them, if he has to show them directly what it is that they need to believe in, he'll show them directly what they need to believe in. And I love in Revelation, after the rapture and, the, and toward the very end, he's got the angel flying in the heavens proclaiming the gospel. Just goes to prove he never needed us in the first place. He just allowed us to be the privilege of giving the gospel. Because he could have had angels delivering this message all along. And as soon as you got saved, bang, you go to, Christ, you, you go to, you go to heaven and, you're, and your life's over as soon as you accept Jesus Christ. You know, he doesn't, he's never needed us. He just gives us the pleasure and the privilege of ministering for him. And more people need to see it as the, the privilege to share. The privilege to go out and share the gospel with other people. And if we saw it more as a privilege rather than a drudgery, you know, I've got to go do this, it would be so much better. Because if it's a privilege, but even beyond that, do we enjoy our Christianity? If we're really enjoying our Christianity and God's blessing us, why wouldn't we share him with others? We go out to dinner and have a good dinner someplace and it's well, good service, good food. We'll tell people about it. And we don't want to tell people about our God who gives us our daily blessings and our benefits and, our, and, our, and, and gives us our, li our very life and, and meets our needs and we don't want to tell people about it. Why don't we want to tell people? Well, because they might think we're just a little nuts. And you know what? I don't have a problem with that. I used to love, and I've told people, I used to love going into the restaurants, sharing with people. You know what God did with me yesterday, you know, did for me and my family yesterday, and, he, and I'd go into this long description of what, and you could see in their eyes, oh, he's going he's gonna to attribute to God you know, all, of his, all the good that happened to him again. But you know what? It didn't bother me. Because every once in a while, somebody would come up and ask me about God. And as a manager, then I could open up and talk to them. I couldn't share, I mean, I couldn't be the one initiating because I couldn't make it look like it was a requirement of the job to be a Christian. But if they came to me, I could tell them all I wanted, all, they, all, all that I wanted to and then some, more than they, more than they really wanted to know. And, and, we need, and even when we say that he loves us, we need to make sure they understand what love is because most people don't have a clue what love is. Love, they believe that love is that you just you love somebody so you let them do whatever they want and become a spoiled rotten brat because nobody ever disciplines them. That is not love. Love is not being you know you're not going to love your kid so much that you let him play you know run out in the middle of the street and say oh that's all right I love him you know as he gets hit by the car. That's definitely not love for that child. Love him to death. Yeah, he loved him right to death. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Uh, I love my child, so I'm not going to protect my pool you know, and let them fall in. So first off, a lot of times we have to define what love is to people. And this is the first place. And this is why I keep saying, when we witness to people, we need to make sure they understand who God is. Do they know who we're talking about in the first place? Who Jesus is? 
do they know who we're talking about Jesus? Because there's certain groups, if you talk about Jesus, they're going to be thinking just a man. There's another, other groups that are going to think that it's Lucifer's brother. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of weird thoughts out there about who Jesus is. There's all kinds of weird thoughts about who God is. You talk to some people and go, well, I don't believe in a, in a man that sits up there in the middle of the universe on a, on a big chair and just glares down at us waiting to beat us up. Well, I don't believe in that God either. Uh, you know, and I would agree with them. You know what? I absolutely agree with you. I wouldn't believe in that God either. So we need to define who God is, the creator of the universe that loves us so much that he sent his son to die. And so we build this up with people and we need to define terms. Why, why is it important? How can we do these things? All right, verse 31. But as for you, stand you here by me and I will speak unto you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them and they may do in them in my land which I gave them, gave them to possess. So he started out at the beginning in verse 22 saying that God gave him the Ten Commandments. He spoke them out loud and didn't give them any more. And then we come on over 31 and God says, I got a whole bunch more rules for them. Uh, it's not just those ten. And I've heard a lot of people talk, you know, teach. You know, God, God gave the Ten Commandments and man made all the rest. Well, the other 613 are God-given commandments. And they're all there to prove and show that we can't keep his rules. We can't even keep the Ten Commandments, much less the other 603. But just in case somebody thought they could keep the Ten Commandments and somehow thought they managed to, he gave them another 603 to show that they couldn't. Because there's no way we keep them. And we can't even keep these ones, especially when we take them to the level Jesus took them. And you know, Jesus said, if you are angry at a brother without a cause, you've committed murder in your heart. If you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. And most everybody has done one of those two things in their lifetime. Lusted after somebody or something, or gotten angry with somebody for no, for no good reason. So they've all committed these crimes that, that God says are crimes. Most everybody has lied at least once in their life, if not once a day. That's what the Jews tell me. I've never counted them, but the Jewish scholars say there's 613 laws in the in the scripture, and I have no doubt that there are. Yeah, they're, oh, that, they're the Old Testament laws. Because there's nothing, there's no new laws in the, in the New Testament. They're just reiterated. You get into those, and the, those laws are almost innumerable. There's a, the book that, the time I went to a Jewish synagogue, there was a book of about five or 600 pages that broke down what you could and couldn't do based on the 613 laws. Their book is bigger than, is as big as the entire Bible, and it's just how to follow the laws. This is how serious they take it, and how, and this is why when Jesus walked on this world, he violated just about every one of those extra, extra laws and rules they put on, but didn't violate God's law. The Orthodox Jew to this day, does, it, does he keep with all these old Jewish? As best they can. Because some of them they can't keep because they were in how to worship and how to offer sacrifices. Mm. And so obviously they can't do those laws. And they, the Jews to this point, because I talked to a Jew once and I go, well, how do you get forgiveness of sin? Because there's no shedding of the blood, you, there's no sacrifice. And what they have determined is that you, if you follow the laws, you do more good than bad, you're going to be okay with God. So they've taken Judaism the way God took it and just watered it down to just a religion because they lost the temple. They can't shed blood. 
So, because they can't go in their backyard and create an altar and shed blood in the backyard because they're not a priest and and it has to be done right in the right way. And so right now they are living, and this is one of the reasons that the Jews so desire to have a temple rebuilt. Because a true Orthodox Jew really knows, even though he's abiding by this idea of do more good than bad, they're yearning for that time when they can go and give the sin offering and know that their sins are covered for a year, at least as far as they believe, because Jesus was the offering. Any offering from this point, any sin offering is it's an abomination to God. Uh, the fellowship offering and the peace offerings will be the ones that operate in the, in the millennial kingdom because they were celebration offerings to God. They had nothing to do with the sin. And if you remember back when we were talking about the, the fellowship offering, they would offer that and then they would take half the offering home with them and they'd have a great big party because it had to be eaten within 24 to 48 hours. So they'd invite all their friends to, to eat this, eat the, you know, eat, help them eat this uh, big... Uh, ox that they had <laughs> offered. So it became a big party for you know celebrating with God and, and those offerings will go on into the millennial kingdom. We've got a lot that goes on and you know for most Gentiles we just think, oh it's an offering. Now there's all kinds of different offerings that we have to be aware of. And we, we spent a long time on, that, on those in, in Exodus and Leviticus we spent a long time on those offerings and there'll probably be some mention of them here in Deuteronomy, I don't remember but I'm sure there is, it's a total re-giving of the law. Verse 32, and you shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. Why was God being so strict with them? Because they said that they would keep all the rules. God says, I'm going to give you a bunch of rules. And they go, oh yeah, yeah, give them to us. We're ready. We'll do them. And God says, okay, you really want all these rules? I'll pile on the rules for you. And he goes, you're going to keep, you're to keep all of them. You said you're going to keep them. You're not to turn. You're not to turn away from them. And verse 33, And you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live, and it may, and it may be well with you and long days in the land which you shall possess. So Moses is giving them already this warning. And he, and he even told them, there's curses if you don't do these. We're going to get to the curses. There's, there's a full chapter of 64 verses. Most of it is the curses that the people were going to endure for violating God's law. And in one of the places he says, all the curses of Israel will be laid upon you if you don't follow all my law. We should be so happy we don't have to follow his law. Jesus fulfilled the law, and we don't have to live the law because he fulfilled it. They tried to trick Jesus Christ with the, uh, what's the, two, what's the greatest laws in, of them all? And to love your, our Lord, our God, with all your heart, mind, and strength. And then the other is to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest laws, and the rest of it go down into it. That always boggled my mind, you know, that we love someone else. You know, we love ourselves. You know, you're honest with yourself, and you know you're a little sinner. You know, I think you love yourself for being a, a wild sinner. But the point of that love for ourselves is most of us are not going to starve ourselves to death unless we've got mental issues. Nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to commit suicide. We're going to treat our body. We're going to feed our body. We're going to, you know, do things to keep our body in, in somewhat good health. And that's what he's saying, you know, treat that's, people. That's the love he's talking about. Yeah. The general, the general love of my body that I'm not going to go out and kill myself tomorrow unless I have some mental issues. 
Yeah. It's not just, you know, because you're right. If we really look at ourselves the way God sees us and uh, or sees us without Christ, then no, we're not going to have great love for ourselves. But that this, his love, when he's talking about that, is the love that we show ourselves, that we're not going to harm ourselves. And if we're not going to harm ourselves, we shouldn't harm others. We should have that kind of love. But even when you were saying this about trying to trick him, it was not a real trick because that's what the Old Testament says. He was just quoting back to them the Old Testament, these are the two main commandments. And in those are all the commandments. If you love God with all your heart, strength, and mind, you keep the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments automatically because they're all about God. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to keep the other commandments because you're not going to go out and kill people. You're not going to steal from them because you wouldn't steal from yourself. You're not going to go after their wife because you wouldn't want anybody going after your wife. So, but that is where the whole thing comes down to is how much do we love God how, is, is revealed by how much we let him fill us. And the more he fills us, the more we will be changed and the more we will become like him. And it is a wonderful thing as we become more like him, we start loving people better, we start being kind to people, we start edifying people more often. And this isn't something that we learn overnight. We have to learn it over time. Mm -hmm. uh, listening to the pastor this afternoon on the radio and he was talking about how we grow in Christ. And I've talked about this on various, various times is that we do start out as children, you know, as infants, demanding our way, our rights, being selfish like all kids do. Mine, mine, mine. Yeah, mine. well, that's how we are, and that's how we start out as Christians. God give me, God give me, God bless me, God bless me. Uh, you know, pastor, I need you to give me a good lesson because I'm not, I'm not able to do it myself. I need to be fed. And then they grow up a little bit and they start feeding themselves and they start, start learning to love others and care about others. And then they mature a little more and they're starting to go, okay, now I'm starting to really understand this. I can, I can do a good job feeding myself and I'm able to love others. And then you get to the maturity of the father who starts handing it off to the next generation and saying, okay, uh, I've taught you all that I can teach you. It's now time for you to go out and on your own and you take charge and you start raising the next the next generation to out of the out of the me me me's into the learning how to love others and this is the way it's supposed to work yeah, and this is and the problem that we have in churches is most people you get saved and there's a lot of people who expect you to be mature overnight mm. okay well how come you're not living like a christian you've been a christian for 24 hours you should be you should have given up all those bad things already You've been a Christian for a year. How come you're not perfect? And we need to understand it's a growth cycle. We don't do this with our own kids. You know, we don't pick them up on, and bounce them on the, uh, uh, as they're learning to strengthen their legs and they take two steps and say, okay, now you start running. You know, well, kid, why'd you fall down? You, know, you should be running by now. You, you were able to stand with, the help of the, with my hands helping you. How come, you're, how come you fell down? And yet we do this to brothers and sisters in Christ all the time. They're just learning to walk with God and we criticize them that they're not running and flying with eagles because they're learning. And you think about this, especially the later you, you change your mind, you've got a lot of garbage to work out of your mind, a lot of, a lot of bad thoughts and, and incorrect thoughts that are filling your mind. And it's gonna take time to get rid of all the garbage that was put in there and put new information in 
And this is something that's very important for us to understand. The renewing of the mind. The renewing of the mind, getting rid of the old, getting in the new. And the older we are when we come to Christ, the harder that's going to be to do because I've lined in all these things that I used to think about God that were incorrect. All these things about relationships that I have that are incorrect. And then all of a sudden God comes in and says, well, no, you can't live with, live with that person outside of being married because that's sin. Well, I've never had a problem with it before. Well, that was because you weren't one of my children before. And all of a sudden, now you've got something that's staring you in the face that you've got to correct. You go, no, you can't get angry at this person. You've got to love this person because that's what I want you to do. Well, I've never had any problem with it because you weren't my child before. The world hates, hates each other. They attack one another. They fight one another. And so we see all of these things, and you know, we have to work out these things. And we need to, it takes time to work some of them out. It takes us being in the Word of God. It takes us listening to pastors. And just getting somebody into the church and into the Word when they're first saved can be tough sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, some people just go, I'm so happy God changed everything in my life. They jump right into the church. Uh, others are, well, it's taken a long time for me, and I've been burned by the church, so I don't want to go to church, you know. The, uh, those people didn't like me in the past and I don't know that I like them and even though God tells me I'm supposed to like them I don't want to be around them and we see all, we hear all the excuses we see all the excuses and people just need to learn we just need God to you know to God to show them how to be who he wants them to be and that takes some time for some people sometimes people take a long time and then some places we learn real quick other places we hardly ever learn some places we put big fences around and say, keep out, and that's to God. God, you stay, you know, you can have all my life, but I want, I want this sin in my life. Or we have people who say, God, you're welcome into my heart, but I want you over there in that closet. If I need you, I'll let you come out. You know, God, you just stay over there, and if I need you, I'll let you come out and fix, fix my problem. Then you can go back into the, over there into the closet or that small bedroom back there. But, you know, you're not, you're just a guest. Stay in the guest room, and when I need you, I'll let you come out. And those are the two extremes a lot of people will do. And God is saying, no, I want to sit on the throne of your, of your heart. I want to be in the living room. I want to be in the kitchen. I want to be in the dining room. What, where you are, what you're doing, I want to be in the center of everything that you do. And that's a scary place for a lot of people, to have God get that intimate with them. He already knows all about us. He knows our sins. He knows our weaknesses. And he says, I'm here. I want to help you through those. I can, help, I can help give you the answers. When you don't know the answers, I'll be here to give you the answers. He's wisdom living inside us, giving us direction so that we can be prudent and make wise decisions. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the fact that you love us so much. Lord, we thank you that you give us grace. You give us the law to show us that we can't keep it, that we don't deserve your righteousness. We don't deserve heaven. And that and you want to indwell us. And we just thank you for all of that in your son's precious name. Amen.